We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States in order to form a Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. The President shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors and other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law. Article 2, Section 2 of the United States Constitution. Welcome aboard, my friends. It is Constitution Thursday time we set aside to talk about the Constitution, how it was written, what it was, what it meant when it was written, what it means today, how it's been interpreted down, and how it affects our lives each and every moment of our day. Ego biberica pulis and olive aver if I drink coffee so that others might live. It was 1866 after the American Civil War had ended when a case came before the Supreme Court of the United States to deal with something that had happened during the war. Now, during the war, Lincoln had suspended the writ of habeas corpus, as you know, and there was a great deal of debate, argument, discussion about whether or not he could do that or should have done that. And as it turns out, he could. Should he have? Who knows? The bottom line was there was a group of five what were known as copperheads, and these were gentlemen who opposed the Union, favored the South, but lived, worked in the North, in the Union. The general policy towards copperheads had been one of distrust, and in fact, by by the middle of the war's point, Copperheads were regularly being arrested and thrown in jail because, let's face it, their opposition, they, they want to destroy the United States. And so it was not unusual for Copperheads to be jailed. These particular five Copperheads found themselves in front of a military tribunal, which found them guilty of being seditious and dangerous and traitorous and passed sentence upon them. In the meantime, the war ended, and the five appealed their case all the way to the United States Supreme Court, where they were actually defended by a former Union general who was concerned about the fact that, well, we have this First Amendment thing, free speech, we have these rights of conscience. We have these 
belief systems that that we don't you know we don't punish people for what they think kind of approach to things that union general actually eventually won the argument he was a very accomplished lawyer in the meantime he'd become a congressman and he was quite adept at arguing his case the milligan five as they would known in the case called ex parte milligan the Supreme Court ruled that the military tribunals were unconstitutional if the civilian courts were still in operation. In other words, they couldn't try civilians. The military tribunals could not try civilians, which these five were, if the civilian courts were still in operation, which they were. So you can't convict people because you're using the wrong court system. And in Ex parte Milligan, the Supreme Court ruled that these five should not have been convicted, should not have been tried by that system, and, and they were thrown out. The whole thing was thrown out. It was this particular case that kind of caught the attention of this particular congressman because he was he was clearly an up-and-coming star in the Republican Party. He had all the right credentials. He'd been a, a Civil War general. He was now a congressman. He was noted by the administration, the Hayes administration, and as the Hayes administration began to battle Congress over some things, it was this particular congressman who found himself in the middle of those battles and standing up for President Hayes and his desire to do some things. Number one, while he had ended Reconstruction and as part of the deal for the Compromise of 1877, Hayes had essentially agreed to remove troops from the South to protect the rights of freedmen. What he did not do was agree to remove the federal marshals. And the federal marshals were charged with overseeing the elections, protecting the elections, making sure the elections were fair and reasonable. And in the process of doing this, he 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 found himself in a battle with Congress because all of a sudden they wanted to defund these marshals. So that was one problem. The other problem was the civil service reform that he wanted to carry out. We talked about this and the fact that he was basically able, not able to really carry out a lot of it. He did do some things, but at that time, the civil service was controlled by what was known as the spoils system. Now, this had been going on really almost since the beginning. Jackson made it worse. Uh, others made it worse, but the spoil system was what actually had allowed the Democrat Party to run everything pre-war, and post-war it was allowing the Republicans to run everything. What this was was, your guy gets elected. Let's say Hayes gets elected, and you're a big donor to the Republican Party or the Democrat Party, if the, the other guy wins, Tilden, and you have brought a lot of votes to the president. And we talk about this all the time. Uh, why do you have this person on the, on the ballot, you know, the, the vice presidential selection? Because they bring this state to the presidency. Uh, we've heard a lot of that kind of discussion of recent days. But the, the point was, you did something that helped the president win his, his election. And in doing so, he would reward you, after the fact, with a spoil of the office. So maybe he makes you the ambassador to 
I don't know, pick a nice place, you know, Sweden or France or someplace, you know, depending on, on, on the relative importance of what you did, you could get a really good ambassadorship or maybe you got a postal uh, positioning, a post office postmaster for a specific area. We'll talk more about that in the coming days about the postal service and, and why that would have mattered. Uh, there were ambassadorships, there were offices, there were trusts, there were port commissioners. And it was in this port commissioner fight with, with, with the spoil system that, that Hayes was having his biggest problems. He wanted to get some what he considered to be very corrupt men out of the port of New York. And he had a problem with doing this, and that problem was Senator Conklin. Remember, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago. Senator Con- now Senator Conklin. Back then, he had been a, a representative. But now, after the election of 1876-78, he becomes a, a senator, and he is just, he is the leader of what will be known as the stalwart Republicans. The stalwarts are the Republicans who believe in the spoils system. They believe that the rewards were earned. And so we merit shouldn't matter at all when it comes to a civil service position. You should get it on the basis of what you did to help elect the administration. And Conklin is their leader. He is he is the most stalwart of the stalwart Republicans. But there are many of them. Being from New York, Conklin has a lot of influence in what happens in New York. And he makes sure that his men get put into positions that are both financially beneficial to themselves and politically beneficial to the party. One of these guys that he puts in the port that, that Conklin manages to get into the port of New York as a administrator is a guy by the name of Chester Arthur. Chet Arthur is a, by all accounts, a decent human being, but he's also a, a political being, and he is very much dedicated to serving the Republican Party as best he can. Chet Arthur is, he does everything that Conklin wants him to do. He does everything that the party asks him to do, and he believes that he's moving up in the system. And because of that, he's not so much in the position of being in the port of New York as he is uh, on the basis of his merit as he is on the basis of he's a good politician, a useful servant of the Republican Party. Well, Hayes doesn't like this, and Hayes wants to get rid of him because he's a prime example, all three of the guys that are there, are prime examples of people who shouldn't be in those positions. They're only there because of the spoil system. He cannot get rid of them, can't fire them, can't get rid of them, can't can't do anything. Conklin, of course, fights him at every turn on this whole thing. And eventually, what he does is he waits until Congress goes out of session. And then Hayes fires them. He demands their resignations, which, of course, they don't provide. And so he just fires them. He just kicks them out of office. You're not it anymore. And this infuriates Conklin. Conklin, he makes some recess appointments to those positions. Conklin is enraged. And a big part of the Hayes-Conklin falling out has to do with this whole thing. Roscoe Conklin versus Rutherford B. Hayes. The upshot of the whole thing, and what you need to keep in mind, is prior to this time, or at this time, the way the spoils were decided was not by the president. 
even though the Constitution says very clearly that the president shall appoint these people, he there was no clear direction as to how that was to happen. And so what would end up happening is when, the, when Hayes walks into the White House and sits down the first day, Conklin walks in with a list. These are the people I want in these positions. And the president, unless there's just something really bizarre, like he wants one of those people for something else, pretty much signs off on it. That takes care of probably half of the offices. The other half are lobbied for, usually by the individual in question. So let's say I did a great job and got so-and-so elected to such-and-such presidency. I could go to the White House in those days, wait my turn, maybe get to see him, maybe get to see the chief of staff, maybe get to see somebody important, depending on how it was, how much, how much I'd raised, what, what I'd done. And then I would tell them, look, I'd, I'd really like to be the postmaster general in Montana or Wyoming or the ambassador to Norway, something along those lines. I would let them know what I would like to be. And presuming that I had done a good job or that I was really worth something, they could or would appoint me to that based on the spoils, not my qualifications. See how crazy this is? And this is what Hayes had, had fought dearly against. For to his credit, Tilden was the same way, but he didn't win. Hayes really wanted to end this system, this spoil system, and go to a merit-based system for civil service jobs, for appointments by the president. But, of course, the senators, the congresspeople who, made, who really made these appointments, were using them as political gifts and power helping them to maintain their own power. And they were never going to give up on this, this, this. That's not happening. No. Not only no, hell no. And when Chet Arthur gets fired by, by Rutherford B. Hayes as the Port of New York Commissioner, boy, Conklin just, even though he literally made the, the Faustian bargain that put Hayes in the White House, well, I didn't expect him to do anything with it. And, you know, it's just, if, I, if I thought he was going to do that, I would have not done this. But, uh, but as it is, it really led to a falling out. And so when Congress began to fight in 78, uh, 1878, by the way, the Democrats took control of Congress. The Bourbon Democrats now already at odds with Hayes over his policies you know, towards defending the rights of freedmen to vote, really, really tried to cut back on some of the things that Hayes was doing. And there, weren't, there wasn't much, folks. I mean, there really wasn't much. The, the, the federal marshals to protect the elections, to allow black people to vote in the South, was literally all that was left. And Hayes was not going to back down on that. The problem, of course, is that federal marshals want to be paid. Rightfully so, I would think. And... The money for that payment came from a congressional appropriation signed by the, the president, and then you could do that. Well, in 1879, Congress tried to attach a rider, several riders, to the funding bill that would have funded the Army, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. And in this Rider, what they demanded was that the funding for the marshals in the South be done away with, and that all interference of the North with the South, you know, the, the former Confederate states, be completely eliminated. 
and that they be given a free hand to deal with the black citizens however they chose to do so, which we've already seen was the beginnings, really, of Jim Crow and disenfranchisement. Hayes was having none of this. He was, he was saying, no, 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 you're not, you're not doing that. And in Congress, the arguments became bitter. I mean, bitter. Newspapers around the country reported as being just incredibly frosty and argumentative. But the problem was, of course, the Democrats weren't going to back down either. And so in 1879, you actually end up with a government shutdown. (laughs) Heard those terms before? You actually end up with a government shutdown by the Bourbon Democrats because they don't want money being spent to protect the rights of black citizens to vote in elections in the former Confederate states. They shut the government down because Hayes would not sign the bills containing the rioters. In the middle of all this, Conklin, who doesn't really like Hayes, but understands the game and how it's being played, he speaks out loudly in the Senate on behalf of the president and not doing that. But it's over in the House where this congressman from Illinois really makes his mark. He gives speeches, he writes letters and articles, and he refers to what the Democrats are trying to do as as essentially being revolutionary. We hold this to be a revolution, he says. And what he means by that is what the Democrats are literally trying to do is overturn the Constitution of the United States. It's not that they're just invalidating the sacrifice of the Union, the Union soldiers. It's not just that they are disenfranchising the black citizen in the South. They are trying to overthrow, they are trying to revolt against the Constitution of the United States. We hold this to be a revolution, he says. And in those words, James Garfield becomes noted around the country, really for the first time since 1866, 10 years before when he had defended the Milligan Five, in their case before the Supreme Court. By all accounts, a very accomplished lawyer, by all accounts, a very worthwhile general, and now he's making a name for himself as a congressman. He doesn't see himself as a political animal per se. What he is doing, he does because he believes more than anybody that the rights that were earned, the rights that were sacrificed for, the rights that were won, are so important that this is the primary purpose of the government of the United States, is to protect those rights of its citizens. And if we just give them up, well, what the hell was the last you know, 20 years for is kind of his approach to it. He's, he's remarkable to me. He's not, nobody's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's remarkable to me that he's one of the few politicians of this era that seems to really grasp this. I'm not even sure Hayes really truly grasped it, but Garfield does. And so in 1880, the summer of the 1880 at the Republican convention, the, the interesting thing about the Southern, the, the Republican convention is that General Grant, U.S. Grant, is back in the favorite p- 
position. Hayes has already made it clear that he's not going to run again. Even if he did, nobody would vote for him. U.S. Grant and some others are back in this thing, but none of them, Blaine, neither Blaine nor Grant, can get enough support from the convention to get the nomination. U.S. Grant, of course, the great general, but lousy president. Do we really want to send him back again? Blaine has issues. We've talked about those before. On the 35th ballot, yeah, we're watching conventions right now. You know, they take one ballot because it's already been decided by the primary. But in this era, they didn't do that. On the 35th ballot, someone says, wait a minute, what about this Garfield fellow? What about, what about him? He's, he's a kind of a, he's got all the credentials, the right credentials. He's, he's been good. What, what about him? And so he's introduced on the 35th ballot where he starts to take votes away from the other two. And on the 36th ballot, he wins the nomination for the Republican nomination for 1880. His opponent in the election of 1880 will also be a former Union General, Union General, a guy by the name of Winfield Scott Hancock, who if you are a historian of the Civil War at all, you know who Winfield Scott Hancock is. He's one of the heroes of Gettysburg. He's one of the, the great generals of the Union Army of the Potomac. And eventually, in the closest election in United States history, I know we talked about 76 being contested. This one's not contested, but it is the closest election in United States history. A little over 1,800 votes, popular votes, separate Garfield from Hancock. Can you imagine that? 1,800 votes. God, if that were to happen today, can you imagine the, the recounts? And Oh, my God. Would never happen today, but he uh, 1800 votes, it's like 0.011 percent. I mean, it's it's it is the closest, but it's clear that Garfield has won the popular vote in the Electoral College. It's even more clear Garfield wins by well over well over 60 votes in the Electoral College because he wins all the north states and a few of the western states, whereas. Hancock just sweeps the South, but the South is smaller, particularly now that population trends have shifted a little bit. And But his, his defeat establishes what will be called for many years to come the Solid South. And Hancock is gracious in defeat because, you know, he knows that it was legit. It wasn't, you know, whatever. And there you go. In March of 1880, I'm sorry, 1881, James Garfield becomes president of the United States. He relieves Hayes. Hayes goes on to uh, back to home. In the in the midst of the election, though, in the midst of the convention, part of the deal that was brokered on that 35th between the 35th and 36th ballot is Roscoe Conklin again sticking his fingers into the pie. Conklin manages to get a lot of the people who are going to, who aren't sure. What should we do? Well, what if we get my guy on the ticket as the vice president and will you support that? Hmm. Well, yeah. So Roscoe Conklin gets 
Chester Arthur, Chet Arthur, the guy fired by Hayes, onto the ballot as the vice presidential candidate. Garfield really doesn't have a lot of say in this because the party decides these things. This isn't one of those things where the president nominee picks his vice president anymore. It's, or before then, but the party did. And so they put Chester A. Arthur on there, who is well known to be a stalwart, (laughs) favors the spoils system because he's a beneficiary of it, and isn't exactly a close friend or ally of either Hayes or Garfield. Garfield once he's in office, wants to continue reforming the civil service. He wants to do away with the spoil system. And, of course, Conklin is having a fit about this. He's not having any of that. He's not even, boy, to him, that's just not even clear. But, to his credit, Garfield sticks to it. He keeps reminding everybody, the president shall nominate. The president shall nominate. Not Roscoe Conklin, not the vice president, not Ted from Alabama, not any of that. The president is the guy that should nominate these people. The president should have the say in all of this. And boy, does he stick to his guns on that. Boy, does he just, he fights Conklin almost every day over these spoil systems. And in the first few weeks of his presidency, Garfield discovers to his dismay that virtually all of his time is taken up dealing with stalwart Republicans who still believe the spoil system is in place because there's no law undoing it. It's the way we've done things. There's no system as yet to merit-based selection. And the president has to go through all these picks to, to, to decide who he's going to nominate. <laughs> I mean, nowadays, that's all done by the transition team and that sort of thing. But in those days, it was the president who normally would take his list from these from the stalwarts, Conklins in the world, and, and fill it out. And, but Garfield isn't going to do that. And he goes downstairs every day at the White House, and every day there's a line of people who are waiting to see him including this one just really weird dude. I mean, just just creepy weird guy who wants to be a post office clown and believes that he has... He, this guy believes that it's his efforts that put Garfield in the White House, that he personally did miraculous work that that put Garfield in the White House, and so he believes he should be rewarded, and he believes he's going to be rewarded because he's been a stalwart Republican, and and anybody that opposes stalwart Republicanism, well, they might as well be a Democrat. Garfield spends hours, hours trying to weed his way through all this crap. And this weird guy, Charles Gateau, keeps coming back almost every day asking for a job, asking for a, a spoil, asking for all this stuff. He keeps being told no. He finally has his White House chief of staff basically tell Gateau, don't come back again, period. You're not getting a job. Go away. <laughs> Which, of course, is the, well... It's one of those moments that kind of changes history, isn't it? Charles Gateau goes home that night. He buys a pistol. He practices with it. 
until he starts to plan. His original plan is to go after Garfield at church. That doesn't work out. But he finds out that Garfield is going to take a train going up north on vacation. And so he goes to the, the train station there. And even then, he's as incompetent at that as he is in anything in life. His first shot just sort of grazes Garfield's back, kind of a miss. The second one embeds in the president's back and doesn't kill him. So he collapses and he's taken away. Gateau, this stalwart Republican, has shot a Republican president because the Republican was not a member of his sect of Republicanism, the stalwarts, and he believes that if he kills Garfield, then the stalwarts will rally around Chester Arthur and he will get his, he will, not only will he be pardoned for killing Garfield, but he'll get his job that he wants. He's delusional, folks. A year from now, after his trial and everything else, he'll be hung and he'll never, never, ever show any regret for any of this. Garfield is, of course, badly injured, but not killed and not immediately, I guess is a better way to put it. He is subjected to, by all accounts of the day, the worst medical incompetence that can possibly be found. When he shows signs of recovery, the doctors decide that, well, this is, this is an excuse for more medical proceduring, and so they go in and make it worse. And by September, September 19th or so, James Garfield relapses with his, with his fever, and after less than a year in office, he passes away. Chester A. Arthur, Conklin's man in the White House. In fact, that's what Rutherford B. Hayes says when he hears the, of the death of Garfield. He's, he's almost willing to believe that Conklin arranged the assassination of Garfield to put his stalwart, his spoil system guy, in the White House. He's willing to believe that. And the sad truth of it is, is that many Americans did believe that, and were they still around, they probably still would. It, it made sense at the time, it made sense that Conklin might have had something to do with this because Chester Arthur's just going to get in the White House, and all he's going to do is sign off on Conklin and others' stalwart system. But a weird thing happens. Chester A. Arthur, who has spent his whole life as a political hack, an apparatchik is what they would call him in Russia, a man who has done everything the party told him to do, including run for vice president, including believing wholeheartedly in the stalwart system, gets into office, and there he works with Congress to pass what will be called the Pendleton Act. In his single term, not even a full term in office, Chester A. Arthur will sign the Pendleton Act, which will establish an actual civil service based on merit with testing and, and advancement and that sort of system, and, and has completely eliminate the spoils system. The man who many believed 
was put in the White House specifically to save the spoil system ends his pres- will end his presidential career destroying it. And it will be remarked eventually that Chester A. Arthur, a man of no particularly remarkable skill or particularly mark- remarkable interest in being president, is the man who will leave the office very well regarded, even though he's not going to be reelected when he be renominated. He will leave the office very well regarded. Few men have entered the office under such a cloud of, if not suspicion, certainly hmm, cloudy question marks about how they got there and why they got there. And even fewer men have ever left the office being as highly regarded as, as Arthur will. We don't even think about him today. We Garfield, Arthur, we, half people don't even know they were presidents. Many people don't know they really got their start under the presidency of Rutherford B. Hayes, the man who stole the 1876 election. And very few people understand that it was the death of James Garfield and the elevation of Chester Arthur to the White House that led to the president nominating people, not the spoil system.